joy of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. I'll uh, bring the text up on the screen. Reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a, a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by by him, and he who invited you will uh, both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin uh, with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So when we read the Bible, we encounter a lot of things that may be perplexing, may be confusing, that we just we don't really know. But one thing we think we do know in the Bible is the Pharisees, right? We, we got those guys locked down. They're the bullies of the movie, right? They're, they're, the, they're the rich snobs. They're the bad guys. Uh, they, they're, they're the ones who just look down on those who are not a part of their holy huddle. And, and, and you know, these are the guys with the strict rules who, who, look, who condescend upon those who don't keep in line. Now, a lot of what I just said is actually true about the Pharisees, even with some exaggerations. But one thing that should get our attention is how Jesus goes after the Pharisees. Now, at times, he goes after them and he chastises them. He calls them a brood of vipers. You know, he calls them some names. He really goes after them super hard. But here, he seems to be going after them to win them times where he appeals to them and uh, and and what's interesting is that uh, um, you know last week I mentioned how Luke uh, likes to slow time down in his gospel that uh, that especially once you get past chapter 9 time just kind of kind of takes a back seat and 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 Luke just kind of slows things down well he really slows it down because verses 1 through 24 of chapter 14 all occur at the same dinner there are four scenes of things that happened at the same meal. 
And so he's like, how often do you get that much text devoted to a single meal? Uh, that's not the, like, the Last Supper, right? <laughs> this is just a dinner that Jesus had with some Pharisees. And Luke says, y'all got to know some things that Jesus said and did at this dinner. Now, and so we're going to actually look at two of those scenes today, and we'll look at the next two uh, next week. Um, but he is having dinner, or he's having this meal, may have been lunch, uh, with, uh, uh, with a leader of the Pharisees. So this is not just a Pharisee, but this is a leader of the Pharisees. This is a very important person socially uh, in the area. And Jesus, in doing so, you would think he would be very careful to, you know, if we were invited to, to a place and it was a, you know, it was not just our boss's, boss's house, but it was our boss's boss. You know, we'd be very careful to mind our P's and Q's. You know, we'd be very careful about what we said. But Jesus is not very careful, or rather, he is quite careful, but he's careful to confront problems that the Pharisees need to hear. And so he confronts the, uh, the legalism and the pride of the Pharisees. And in doing so, he confronts our own legalism and our own pride. And we're going to look at each one uh, today. So first, we're going to consider how Christ confronts our legalism in verses 1 through 6. Now, Jesus does this with a miracle in a situation that we have seen before. But he confronts the, the, the legalism of the Pharisees by establishing what, I, what I'm going to call the priority of compassion. The priority of compassion. We are told the Pharisees were watching Jesus carefully. Well, why? Well, because it's the Sabbath. And, oh, guess what? We just happened to invite someone who has a physical ailment called dropsy, and I wonder what Jesus is going to do. Right Now, dropsy is the swelling of limbs from excess fluid, which is usually a sign of another medical problem. Um, but notice in verse 3, it's, Luke says, Jesus responded to the Pharisees. They didn't say anything. They said they were watching him. That's all it says. They hadn't said anything, yet Jesus responds to them. He responds to their sin-hardened hearts and attitudes. And he asked them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Fairly straightforward answer. Even if they want to nuance it, uh, they could do that. But they give no answer at all. Jesus answers uh, implicitly with a, with a resounding yes by healing the man and sending him on his way. But Jesus knows what is coming next. And so he says, basically, kind of before you accuse me of anything, which of you, which of you who, uh, you know, who has a son or an ox that falls in a well would not immediately pull him out? Now, there are there are certain um, Jewish groups. Uh, the Essenes is one. Um, the Qumran community, I believe, is another one. But they uh, uh, but they would say you're not allowed to pull the ox out, but you could pull your son out. But the Pharisees taught that it was okay to pull your ox out out of the well or ox out of the ditch or pull your son out of the well or pull your son out of the ditch. And so, you know, so he says, you know, which of you? And the answer is, of course, they would. The Pharisees 
thought it was a fine thing to do on the Sabbath to save your own child. And we're like, good, you're not a psychopath. Thank you. We're glad. Why, then, is it inappropriate to heal someone? And in doing so, Jesus establishes the priority of compassion over tradition. Tradition is not in itself a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when tradition prevents us from showing compassion to those who are in need. That is when it becomes a problem. I mean, think about this. The Pharisees claimed that they were honoring God by refusing to allow people to be healed. It honors God to not relieve the burden of this person. This, you know, remember the woman who, was, who had been bent over for 18 years? It honors God to not heal her was their position. God doesn't want people to be helped or healed on the Sabbath except in the particular circumstances that we approve of as Pharisees. And then Jesus comes along and says, you have got it completely backwards. Compassion trumps tradition. Now, we addressed this a few weeks ago and how it is right and good uh, to do uh, good things for others on the Christian Sabbath. It is actually fitting, very fitting, to loose the bonds and alleviate the burdens upon others uh, so that they might be able to more fully rest upon the Lord. And so here, we, what we see here is how the rules of tradition can get in the way of compassionate service in the name of God. And Jesus teaches us that when in doubt, compassion, not tradition, should be the guide. And so, and so Jesus establishes his priority of compassion, but then there is this silence that speaks volumes in the room. Both the responses of the Pharisees should sadden us. They were silent in response to Jesus' first question, and Luke says they could not muster a reply to the second question. Yet their silence is a response, and it is a sad one, a depressing one. It is the silence of rejection, the silence of hard-heartedness toward Jesus. It is a silence that loves the rules more than neighbor, that loves the rules and tradition more than Jesus himself. And we should always have that position as the church, who have a long history of tradition, that when our traditions are put against Christ, Christ always must win. It is a silence that says we would rather hang on to our hypocrisy than admit that we're wrong. Of course, they would pull their kids or their oxen out of a well on the Sabbath. Of course, it is good to heal others or to relieve them of their burdens. But the problem here is that Jesus is disrupting their nice man-made religious system that the Pharisees were at the top of is a system that lets them pretend to be godly on the cheap. It's what Paul called the illusion of godliness, but not the real thing. We're godly because we keep all the traditions of the elders. We're godly because we keep all the washings and we wash our, all our hands. We're, we're godly because we do all these things. And Jesus comes along and says, no, actually, you're not godly. Because you use your tradition as an excuse 
to, to excuse yourself from being compassionate to those who are in need. As he says, as Paul says to Timothy in his first letter, the mystery of godliness is Christ himself, not the traditions of the elders or the traditions of the church. And this should all lead us to a, a question we need to ask ourselves, which is what rules are we captive to? Now, we want to be careful to note here that Jesus is not refuting biblical morality. He's not refuting the commands of God or the commandments of the Lord. He's pushing back against the traditions of the elders, which is a specific phrase that refers to the extra-biblical commands that grew up around the commandments of God. These traditions, these rules became such that in order to keep them, you ended up violating the law of God itself. And so the question is, um, now, well, now we live in a time where there's, there's relatively little uniformity regarding the social rules that we follow. Meaning that, um, you know, it, we talk about the times where, you know, uh, it, was, it was expected that everyone was in church. Um, on Sundays and probably on Wednesdays, like they're just, and if you weren't, it was kind of as socially unacceptable to do so. It was socially unacceptable to do certain things. Uh, it was so, you know, how you dressed was governed by, you know, social rules. And so those days are long gone, right? They are, they, they're gone. And so the question has become more, uh, much more individualized um, and, and perhaps on a church level, a family level, and certainly a person-to-person -person level. But the, que the question is, what traditions and what rules outside of the Bible are we beholden to? We need to ask ourselves this as a denomination, as the Presbyterian uh, Church in America, the PCA, as the Presbytery of the Mississippi Valley, as Bailey Presbyterian Church. What rules are we beholden to? Are there rules in our church that are not in the Bible, that if you violate, you're kind of in trouble? Are there rules in our church that prevent us from being compassionate, that prevent us from relieving the burdens of others? Are there rules or traditions as elders or deacons that we are beholden to that we ought not to be? You know, and on a family level, are there, are there traditions as, as the Mabbitt family that we hold to that prevent us from honoring God and, and obeying him? And then even for myself, individually, what rules do I have? What rules am I beholden to? When, uh, what are those things that I'm following? Are they actually, are these traditions, are these rules, it's not that they're bad, are they biblical though? Do they get in the way of showing compassion to others who are laden with burdens in our lives? Christ confronts our legalistic rule-keeping that prevents us um, from, from helping others and from even leading them to the Lord. But then Christ not only confronts our legalism, then he confronts our pride. Verses 7 through 11. But in order to do that, he kind of goes at it kind of sideways. And he gives us some practical advice on how to navigate a party. So I feel, like, I feel like some of what Jesus wrote could be on a little kind of how to win friends and influence people, right? Just kind of this is 
uh, we could put that in there. But in those days, uh, folks would go to a dinner party like that, and you would, remember, they didn't have chairs in a table. They had a U-shape uh, kind of table, and you would sit on the floor, and uh, you would lean. You would recline at table by leaning on your left arm at the table. And, to, and I've always still, I still have trouble kind of picturing exactly how it worked, because I'm used to my nice chair, right? Uh, so, um, uh, but uh, generally, th- generally it's, it's understood that the, the center, like at, at the bottom of the U, right at the center, that was the honored position, right at the center of everything. And then the next honored position was to be the, to the right or the left of the honored position, and further on down you go. And so the least honored position would be at the top of the U, right, at the furthest away. And, uh, and, and while the details do differ somewhat, this was a very common custom in both Jewish and Gentile Societies. This was you sat by it, it, according to a social order, which I've got to say that would make going to some dinner at somebody's house very, very stressful. So, so where am I going to sit? Do I sit there? Oh, they showed up. Oh no, you know I'm not sure what to do. So, and Jesus observed how everybody was scrambling for the most honored position, and he gives them gives them some advice. And he wor- he's working actually from Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7, which says not to put yourself forward in the presence of the king or to try to advance yourself beyond your place in the presence of the king because it's better to be called up by the king and be honored than to be put lower because of arrogance. And so Jesus gives some practical wisdom. He says, hey, when you come in, uh, basically... Sit at the lowest spot and leave it to the host to elevate you. And then, and then uh, that way you don't have to go through the humiliation and shame of sitting too high. Everyone would go like, hey. Uh, because also um, in those days, the most honored guests, the highest higher in society, tended to be fashionably late. And so, it, and so if you are kind of like, um, imagine it's kind of like whenever I um, have flown on a plane and uh, I get on there. And, there's, and that middle seat's open, and I'm like, sweet. Somebody's called it poor man's first class. You're like, yes, okay, no one's here. They're about to close the door. I'm like, sweet, I get, I get to put my arm, I get to rest, yes, awesome. And then, of course, somebody at the last minute comes on, you know, and they come and they take that spot, and you're like, okay, back to my crowded, you know, cr- crunched up side here. All right, so, but that's, you know, it's like, well, they were fashionably late, you know, and so if you go and take this honored position, they come in, and they're higher than you, well, guess what? you got to scooch down to your shame. And uh, now we do, we do have this today. Uh, if you've gone to, I mean, he says a wedding feast. If you go to a wedding, right? If you're, if you're just an average guest to inv- and you get invited, and then you go sit in the groom spot at the reception, you're going to get moved, right? And it'll be embarrassing, or you sit at the wedding party, or you sit at the immediate family table, right? You have these different settings of groups of kind of honored, honored social order uh, that you're like, I can't sit there. That is reserved space, right? And so, but if I go sit there, I get moved. So we still have this today. Now, some have objected to Jesus uh, giving this advice because it seems uh, a, a bit manipulative, Kind of, well, I want it. the best path for my exaltation is to sit at the, the lowest spot, so I'll go do that. And it seems a little mercenary. Uh, and, 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 but that's really only if you're viewing it from a cynical lens. And uh, because 
one, number one, the advice is still sound. It's still wise. But secondly, it's more for profound when you get to the true lesson that Jesus is driving at, which he tells us, which is that we need to take the path of humility. If you really want exaltation, humble yourself. Do the thing that you don't want to do and humble yourself and you will be exalted. Um, for one thing, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis says, talks about this in, um, uh, in his writings. And he talks about how Jesus is never shy to hold out incentives for faith and obedience. He promises all kinds of blessings for those who will believe, trust, and obey. Like he, he does. Uh, and, and he says in his famous uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, he, he's, he says the problem is not that we want too much from Jesus, it's that we want too little. And so we just, we just want to content ourselves not with, with just kind of these earthly, crummy, uh, uh, temporary blessings because we can't imagine what heaven's like. We can't imagine what the blessings that Jesus promises like. So we're just like, well, ju well just give me the stuff that will pass away in a moment. I'll be happy with that. And so, and so he, says, he says basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but just that since we can't imagine the kinds of blessings Jesus offers, we content ourselves with sin like a child. Uh, like a child who would rather uh, play in the mud because we can't imagine what a weekend at the coast is like. And she go, no, I don't want to go. Why? Because I don't know what that's like. No, it sounds hot. You know. There is a warning here that, that self-exaltation leads to humiliation. Self-exaltation leads to humiliation. And if that is true at a dinner party, how much more will that be true before God at the day of judgment? Luther, uh, Martin Luther on this passage warned that we will either humble, humble ourselves now or we will find ourselves humbled by God in the end. But conversely, even if there's a warning, conversely, there's also a promise. The path of exaltation comes through humility. The Apostle Paul actually tells us that Jesus himself took that path of exaltation through humility. That though he was God in his very nature, he humbled himself, taking on flesh, even to the point of death on a cross. And the Father was pleased to exalt him to the highest place, to give him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and declare Jesus to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even now, the path of exaltation is laid bare for us by Christ. The only way to true, ultimate, glorious exaltation comes through humility, through humbling ourselves, accepting that we are, in fact, sinners who cannot save ourselves by our works or by our goodness. That is humbling. Humbling, ourse humbling ourselves before God, and confessing ourselves to be sinners, deserving wrath, and receiving by faith alone the grace of the Savior. That ultimately results in our exaltation. That ultimately results in our glorification. We are told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians that we have by our union with Christ already been raised with him in heaven. And one day we shall be glorified with him along with the rest of creation. But it only comes through humbling ourselves and receiving the grace of God in the gospel. 
Which leads us to our second question this morning. The first question we had to ask was, what was it? My brain, there, there we go. What rules are we captive to? The second question we need to ask ourselves is, where is our pride? Where is our pride at work today? What is preventing us from humbling ourselves before the Lord or before one another? What are the ways that you and I put ourselves forward? That we act godlier than we ought. That we act worthier than we are. That we act like we have it more together than we do. The opportunities, I've said before, and it's still true, the opportunities for pride abide in pastoral ministry. I mean, honestly, I mean, just in my sinful, sinful gut level pride, I want every sermon to be dynamic and powerful. When people say good sermon pastor, I actually want them to mean it at the end of the day. Um, not just be that awkward thing that you say to the pastor as you leave. Now, now no, everyone's going to be confused about what to say at the end now. But, but I want people to come and to join the church, to pack it out, and to listen to Eric preach and go, what a great preacher. Isn't it just wonderful for us to be in his presence? I want thousands of people to download the sermon and to get conference speaking offers that I have to turn down because I'm so busy. I want to be respected as one, of, one with great holiness and godly discipline and a depth of knowledge of theology, especially by all the elders of the Presbytery. I want every pastoral encounter with one of you, one of my church members, to, to and anyone, honestly, to leave you in profound awe of all the biblical wisdom I have. And I could go on with all the demands that my pride makes regarding my marriage. That, it to be, that I'm just the best husband ever. And why doesn't my wife congratulate me all the time? My parenting, that I'm the best father ever. Why don't my children recognize it more? And on and on and on we could go. I was thinking about this. I, I started crying. Because it made me so sick to see how the depth of depravity of my heart and what where pride can take me. But the good thing is that it breaks me too. It brings me to my knees. Humiliates me before God. Because of how stupid and dumb that is. All that nonsense, that garbage I just uttered off. It leads me to abandon foolish, prideful fantasies about turning ministry into a means of self-exaltation. And it leads me more to the place where I beat my chest to the tax collector in tears. And say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's there. It's there that God reminds me, even as your pastor, reminds me that I'm his child, that he loves me, and that he will never forsake me, and that Jesus is my only assurance and my only hope, but a sufficient one. 
It's there in my weakness. In God's grace and power and love that I find the true pastoral heart for ministry, the true desire for godliness, and zeal for obedience. What's interesting about Jesus' parable here is that what he says is, stop trying to find your place and assign the place of honor for yourself. Trust the host to do it for you. Trust God to honor you with the, in the appropriate way. Trust God to place you where you ought to be. In his commentary on this section, Darrell Davis, he sees Jesus asking, in, the, in this whole section that we've been looking at, he sees Jesus asking the Pharisees two questions. First, that he, that he sees Jesus asking the Pharisees, can you see your spiritual bondage? Can you see these things, these traditions that have actually bound you up and prevent you from doing the thing that you say you want to do? And secondly, can you see your pride? Your pride that is devastating you spiritually. And so I ask you, precious believers today, where are you bound to? Where is your pride? Let us not become like the Pharisees who sit back in silent, arrogant rejection. hold on to self-affirming traditions and puff up pride. But rather, let us lower ourselves, take that last seat at the table, confess our sins, and receive his grace. Because as the word promises, in due time, he will lift us up. Because we are not the host of the party. God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the host of the party. And Lord, we bow ourselves before you. And we confess, Lord, that pride is a deep, deep-rooted sin in our hearts. And left unchecked, it runs rampant. It produces things like false humility. It produces things like good works that look good on the outside but are really just driven by, uh, by self-doubt and the desire to affirm ourselves by the praise of others. A drive from an internal fear that will be found out so we work so hard to make sure that we, we look good on the outside. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of pride, that you would convict us of any traditions that we have as a church, as, a, as families, as individuals, traditions or rules that are outside of the scriptures that prevent us from being obedient to the great commission that you've called us to, that, that, that prevent us from being obedient to living godly lives of prayer and faith and joy in Christ Jesus. Lord, may you show us all the things that are hindering us that are slowing us down, that are weighing us down in the race, 
that we may cast them off in repentance and faith, that we may, uh, that we may enable one another, strengthen one another to endure and encourage each other in love and good works as long as the day is called today. Father, may we set our eyes on Jesus and not seek our own honor, but entrust ourselves to the host. For we humble ourselves before you because our Savior humbled himself first. And so we humble ourselves, Lord, as sinners saved by grace, as children before their Father, declaring that everything we have in this life and the next comes from you. Everything good we have is yours. We are merely stewards, children to whom things have been given. And Lord, we give you all the praise and honor and glory that go along with it. And we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit's help, we would grow and mature in the faith, that we may give glory and praise and honor, and that others may come to faith uh, in Christ through us, always and ultimately, for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's